Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. Thanks so much for listening. On today's episode, I speak to Philip Agnew, a native of Chicago, Illinois, and co-founder of the Dream Defenders. He's also a Bernie Sanders surrogate. He co-founded the Dream Defenders in 2012 after the murder of Trayvon Martin and has been dubbed one of this generation's leading voices and recognized by both Ebony Magazine and The Root as one of the 100 most influential African Americans in the nation. Agnew is the co-founder of Miami's Smoke Signal Studio, a community-based radical artistic space with his partner, poet Aja Monet. You can follow him on Twitter at iPhilSomething, as in I-P-H-I-L something. Philip and I actually met January 28th. We were both speakers on this amazing uh, event called Class Warfare, The Future of Left Politics. It was presented by Harvard students for Bernie. And it was with me, Crystal Ball, Megan Day, and Nomiki Konst, Cornell West, Isha, Krishnaswamy, Michael Brooks, and Philip. So I'm going to be cutting in some of the audio from that great event. Thanks so much for listening to The Katie Helper Show. Please support The Katie Helper Show by going to Patreon, patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. If you are a Patreon supporter at the $5 level, you get to hear Patreon-only episodes. And uh, make sure you check out my Patreon-only interview with Margaret Kimberly, which is really great. She talks about the Democrats, why they suck, um why she stopped being a member of the Democratic Party. And it's kind of cathartic, especially given the Michigas that's happening now in Iowa. Of course, I'm Bernie all the way. I'm not encouraging anyone to not stick with Bernie, but it definitely uh, hits home, especially now. So first, I'm going to play you some of the audio from that event. I'm going to play you some of the stuff that I said, some of the stuff that Philip said. Then I'm going to play the interview I did with Philip. And then after I played that interview... I will play some of the audio of the other speakers at the event. Now we'll welcome Piper Winkler to the stage for opening remarks. Piper is a junior at Harvard College, majoring in comparative literature and also an organizer with Harvard for Bernie. Hello, everyone. Before I begin, I want to clarify that my words are my own. They do not represent any of the organizations that are co-sponsoring this event. I want to thank you all for being at this conference tonight. The words of Eugene Debs in his Canton, Ohio speech feel appropriate in this moment. How good it is to look into your glowing faces this afternoon. You are all really good looking to me, I assure you. (laughs) And I'm glad there are so many of you. Many of us have come together tonight, uh, some no doubt interested to see how class warfare suits Harvard University. Since we announced this event, I've heard and seen people remarking with surprise and irony that Harvard should be the site of anything to do with the class war. But I assure you, nothing could be more at home at Harvard than the class war. It has been 384 years in the making. Perhaps you have read an article from one of our panelists, Megan Day. Defend Your Class, which ran in Jacobin last April. (laughs) Defend Your Class is named for the slogan that inspired Harvard students to leave the classroom in 1912 and to take up arms with the National Guard to break the Lawrence Bread and Roses strike. What was the threat from which the class of the Harvard elite needed defense? It was a movement of the working class, men, women, and children, 
of 30 countries of origin, speaking 45 languages, demanding freedom from the daily threats to their lives posed by underpaid and dangerous jobs, and even more radically, the freedom to exist beyond the value assigned to their labor by the capitalist bosses. What was the value of those three words? Defend your class to the Harvard undergraduate militiamen. Perhaps you know that hundreds of strikers were beaten and thrown in jail by the strike breakers, and that two were murdered. For demonstrating their allegiance to their class, the Harvard students received course credit. You hear it said often now, and it has always been true. This is part of the legacy of a Harvard degree, of a Harvard education. Progress at Harvard, you may say, has surely taken place in the last hundred years, and I would say you are right. The Harvard brand has expanded fabulously in its prestige and in its power, and above all, it has progressed in its capacity to defend its class. About a mile from where we are gathered here, there's a new engineering school going up in Lower Alston, described by our president, Bacow, as a jewel of a building, a billion dollars in its making. This complex has been described as the first inkling of Harvard's vision for a new Lower Alston, a new vision for one of the last affordable neighborhoods in Boston, while hundreds of our neighbors sleep on the streets every night. Now that is all just pretty talk for a class war. Progress indeed. Harvard's progress is not our progress. Has anyone watching our teaching fellows and course assistants strike in the yard for fair pay and decent health care? watching this go on, taking comfort in the fact that 62 of the world's current billionaires are Harvard affiliates, Harvard graduates. Who among us reads that the Harvard endowment has reached $40 billion in the fiscal year 2019 and celebrates, knowing that these dollars rebound from investments in the modern slavery of private prisons and the global destruction of fossil fuels? We do not. We do not because Harvard's progress is not our progress. This institution stands rank and file with the National Guard of 1912, with the Henry Kissingers of 1969, and the war profiteering presidents of the 2000s, Republican and Democrat. And in these 384 years, it has not missed a single step. My task is not to build up a pile of evidence against Harvard out of hatred or spite. My point is far more important. What I want to illustrate for you is that the war-making, strike-breaking impulses of this institution are not random, they are not unrelated. In fact, they could not be more coordinated. What they show us is that Harvard is a case study in unity, and that unity is in the name of the almighty profit motive, the power of the next dollar and the dollar after that. That is what we all are worth to it. But every single one of you is worth the world to me. I hope that you feel that way about one another because our shared future depends upon it. We can comfort, rally, mourn, and transform the face of the earth with this knowledge. Unity is not a substitute for solidarity. Unity is not a substitute for solidarity. In the words of St. Augustine, charity is not a substitute for justice. When our brothers and sisters in the homeless community walk into an apartment and call it home, we will say, this is justice and not charity. When working class children enroll in free college instead of in the army in order to build a better life, we will say, this is justice and not charity. When we realize and honor Fred Hampton's vision for a rainbow coalition against a racist police and incarceration system, against the starvation of children and against the commodification of healthcare, we will say, this is not charity, this is not generosity, this is not a concession, this is justice. Woo! Charity lets us know 
Charity lets us know that we do not deserve so much as our own survival. In our time, the great crescendo of class warfare, something tells me that the powerful institutions of this world will continue to become ever less charitable. Let us take this thing out of their hands and into our own. Let us have justice, a justice made possible by solidarity. There is no substitute on earth for that. I'm a literature student, and so of course, I am thinking of a verse written by the revolutionary poet W.B. Yeats. A verse that Yeats wrote in praise of a friend bred to a harder thing than triumph. As a volunteer for the Bernie Sanders campaign, I have knocked hundreds of doors in Iowa and in New Hampshire. I will not forget the Iowans that I met shortly before the new year. I spoke to a woman who shared that she was on leave from her low-wage job because a physical disability made the work too painful. But what decided her vote was the idea of a world in which she could afford mental health care. She told me about the struggles she faces every day to get out of bed. And then told me that on February 3rd, she would get out of bed, and then she would get into her car and drive to a caucus site where she will caucus for Bernie Sanders. She would do all of these things in the name of a harder thing than triumph. Let us remember, with fierce love and tenderness, the great anti-war activist, Al Johnson, who canvassed among us in Nashua every weekend. Brother Johnson passed away on the first day of the new year. From his deathbed on December 31st, 2019, Brother Johnson made 200 phone calls for the presidential campaign of Bernie Sanders. Born to a Kentucky coal miner growing up in the public housing of Massachusetts, he was imprisoned as a conscientious objector of the Vietnam War. He spent a year in that military prison for loving peace. Al Johnson was bred to a harder thing than triumph. Al Johnson was bred to solidarity his entire life. Let us be bred to a harder thing than triumph, the thing that makes triumph possible. Let it be solidarity. For then our work can never come to nothing. In the last day of his life, Al Johnson placed 200 calls in the name of a world that he would not live to see. What great certainty he had in those final hours. Not a certainty in victory, but a certainty in the value of your life and my life, in the right to live in peace. That is an endless victory that will outlast every brick and ivy leaf of this institution. Let us be so certain in our shared purpose and certain in our way forward. With every worker with temporary protected status, with every student with DACA status, with every climate refugee, with every community affected by the so-called war on drugs, with every union man and woman, we are certain that the world must change because we belong in it. The day will come when the working class lives in the housing it has built and benefits from the labor it has provided. We must work for that day together in solidarity, and we must accept no substitute. We must cast our votes for solidarity in 2020, but this is only the beginning. Thank you. Which goes back to the charity versus justice mm -hmm. idea, right? Because um, you know you have real um, working class 
protectors, warriors like Mayor Pete and um, <laughs> Amy, Amy Stapler throwing uh, Klobuchar, who pretend that you can't have universal programs because it's not fair to ask working people to pay for like Baron Trump to go to a community college. Right. Um, <laughs> and of course, these people are like Mayor Pete, he went to Harvard and he went to Oxford, he's a Rhodes Scholar, and that, of course, means he's a sociopath. Sorry, Harvard. But that's a bad combination. That's a bad combination. I'm sure there's some exceptions. Not all double, double grads. Um, but they, these people understand that, like, when you make these things um, uh, needs uh, means-tested, that they are stigmatized and that they're seen as, again, as charity, not as justice. And then you, there's a reason there is a term, you know, people talk about the welfare queens, not about uh, social security queens because they know how to how valuable it is to have programs that they can stigmatize we are fighting for the soul of not only the democratic party but the soul of the country and the nation and so when we talk about the soul of the democratic party i think when we look in a historical context we can say that there have been times where the democratic party has had the what right so the the what the the health care for all there was a there was a new deal there was a a level of understanding that we needed to do certain things to alleviate the economic ills of people. We needed to embrace unions. We've talked about that before. We needed massive infrastructure improvements and to put this country to work. We need to make sure that wages are fair, make sure that people aren't working seven days a week all day. So the what has been there before, but when we look at the soul of the Democratic Party in the country, I think we need to look at the why, the when, the where, and the who. And that is where, when we, when we look at the autopsy of the party, that is where I think we will find the soul of it and where it will go. So when we talk about the why, we've had the what there, but the what has been because it will cost less. Right. There's been a neoliberal agenda that supported that because it may save the country, because we may lose an election if we don't do that. The what was there, but the why was always wrong. And when we talk about the soul of the Democratic Party and what it will be, we need to do those things, but it is not because it costs less, because it is politically expedient, but because we believe in the humanity of people. And that is something that is, no matter what administration we have, that is something that will last beyond an administration. And that's when we talk about the soul, it is immortal, right? And so in order to have a soul, the why needs to be attached to human beings mm. and, the, and, the, and the morality and the deep moral and just cause of the party. So we can have the what correct and still have the why incorrect. It could still be tied to a neoliberal agenda, and that is like the chaff which the wind bloweth away. It will be deceased, right? And so when we look at the why, we have to examine that for the soul. When we talk about the where, we've had the what correct, but many times it's been about a domestic thing. There's not been an internationalist thing. Where do we think people deserve to have health care, housing, water, right? So we could have the what correct as a Democratic Party, but if we don't have the where correct, right? Is it, is it here and in Haiti? Is it here in Palestine? Is it here and in South Africa? Here and in South America? Is it those places as well? That's when we look at the soul of this party. Um, when we look at the who, is it just for tradesmen, right? Are unions just for white men? Uh, is housing, um, is, is, uh, is cars, are, are economic uplift just for people who have come back from war who are white, right? Is middle class just for white people? So the who is important when we look at the soul of the country. 
And I think the, the win is important. We don't need incremental things. These are not things we're talking about as generational. Hillel says, if not now, when? Um, and so when we talk about the level of urgency that the Democratic Party has had in, in times before, that level of urgency has been woefully insufficient to the material needs of the people in this room, the people around the world. And so we've got to look at, you know, for the soul, and in my opinion, for us to examine whether we have a soul and whether we will have a soul, it's whether we're willing to engage with not just the what, the policy is good. I believe in the, I'll take a rubber bullet. I'll get it. Yeah, yeah. A punt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right That's here, right? It. You know. Um, so, but, but I agree. I, 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 we, I wouldn't be a part of this movement to elect Senator Sanders if I thought it was uh, uh, exercise of futility. But the what is good, but it is the why. It is the when, it's the where. So excited to be talking to Philip Agnew, who is a um, national surrogate for Bernie Sanders. Um, he's also an organizer and on the board of Plant Parenthood. That um, that Dream is Defender, it. Actually, Dream Defenders. Yeah, yep. Co-founder of Dream Defenders. I actually had my last Planned Parenthood Action Fund board meeting this weekend, so I'm no longer on oh, the board. Okay, got it. So that's been um, aborted. Sorry, I could not help it. No, it's all good. I. Uh, yeah, you could just say artist. I uh, started a community space down in Miami, Smoke Signal Studio, and right now my the only thing I got going is this is this surrogate thing, really. Yeah. So it's actually so let's start there. Tell us about like um, how you started as a surrogate, um, how you got into this campaign. Yeah. Well, I uh, you know I left my organization and with no scandals um, yeah. in November of 2018. And um, was really looking for something to get involved with. I, I love organizing. I wanted to be a part of movement. And, uh, you know, there's no corporate job that'll have me. So I right. needed to find something. And I, want, I, I looked at the, this was, you know, the beginning of 2019. And I was looking at the campaigns. And uh, not everybody had even jumped out there yet. Um, but Senator Sanders' campaign, uh, he's who I voted for. Um, in the primaries in 2016. So this campaign was always one that had my interest and obviously appealed with my politics, but I didn't have a connection to any of the campaigns at all. I had written actually online, I think, to, to the Sanders campaign um, and really didn't hear anything and was trying to figure out what to do. And, you know, coincidence or not, I don't really believe in coincidences, but a friend of mine from 2005, 2006, when we were in college, uh, named Renee Spellman was named deputy campaign manager for the Sanders campaign. I hit her up on the DMs and said, hey, you know, how can I be down? And I, I think pretty much exactly I remember she said a million ways, like so many ways, yeah. uh, give me a call. And so that's that's she was my entry point into the campaign. I got to give a lot of credit to her because honestly, I wouldn't have known what doorway to get into to be involved. And, you know, we've got some amazing surrogates on the team. And so, you know, justifiably, I would have had a really hard time figuring out how to how to be in her and Nina Turner, Senator Nina Turner were big parts of um, how I got involved. Great. And what was it about um, the campaign that spoke to you? Well, the policies are always there. And we talked about that. The policies are 
Um, no matter what presidential campaign you look at presently or in previous years, maybe for 100 years or so, there's no presidential platform that uh, links as closely to my personal politics. You know, I'm, I'm farther left on a lot of issues, right. but this is as close as it gets. And I think really as close as it's going to get in the current electoral lands, you know, they're scared of this. And so right. I think this is as close as it's going to get. But more than that is movement. I think I believe that social movements of the last 20 years, definitely the last 10 years in earnest, created the conditions for a campaign like this one. And I think this campaign has the opportunity to create the conditions for social movements to organize, to have real dual power, to to have unions, to have, you know, um, working people um, be at the forefront of not only the administration and the policies out of the administration, but really on the statewide level, really being able to move things on the ground um, and, you know, from the bottom up, as people say. But truthfully, those are the people that I come from. This is my family. And I think this is an opportunity for us to really organize. So it's the policies, but it's what it creates for the next decade, too. And what can you talk about your political journey? And you said it's your politics, your family. So what kind of um, political, up, um, mm -hmm. you know, upraising did you have? Oh, man. OK, so I grew up a uh, black Christian. <laughs> so, you know, pretty conservative, socially oh. conservative. Um, actually, the the my, it, it's a paradox. It's a, a lot of things. And I'll try to lay out a few things. But, you know, on one hand, I grew up in a church and in a community that saw homosexuality, that um, saw um, things that were seen as disrespectful or things that were not etiquette, right. filled with etiquette as like just repulsive, um, right. obviously homosexuality, you're going to hell. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, th this is, this is kind of my upbringing. It's the upbringing of a lot of black people that go to, that really find themselves in Western religions. Mm -hmm. We take, we take all that stuff on super heavy. And so that was really a lot of my upbringing. And my dad, who was not involved with the Chicago Black Panthers at all, but he was enamored, I, I mm. would say. I mean, he first off, he's the smartest man I know. He was on Jeopardy when I was wow. in third grade. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. He's a, you know, he's a, he, he was my doorway into so much knowledge. And so, you know, kind of conversely, I went to a church that taught me that Jesus was black and mm. that, you know, the, the, the cradle of civilization, civilization was Africa. And my mom and dad were convinced, as most black people are, that Harold Washington, the black mayor of Chicago, was murdered. He didn't die of a heart attack. Yeah. And my dad taught me about Fred Hampton and, you know, Bobby Rush when he used to be in the, in the right. black, with the Black Panthers. And, you know, and so it was I, I did have a little bit of everything. I came up with an understanding of movement but not an understanding of so much the politics that came with those movements. And that didn't happen until college for me. I wish I could say it happened earlier, but college was my first kind of, you know, entry point into what organizing and activism and what a left politic was. And without going too long, if I can be, you know, really honest, I've got friends that I'll tell you this. We, I helped to start this organization, Dream Defenders, in 2012. And I was still a political neophyte in 2012. I mean, there was so much I didn't know. I just, you know, I felt that things were going wrong and I wanted to join, but I didn't have any of the words, even less of the readings done. 
And a lot of that happened over the last eight, eight or nine years that I had to throw myself in. And I had a lot of mentors that helped me out with that, too. And um, so question, are your I don't know if your parents are still alive. Mm-hmm. OK, so were they um, poli- socially conservative in the way that the more conservative black church um, you were describing is? Yeah, I, w- I would say that. I would say definitely more on the conservative end of the spectrum than liberal for sure. And have they have how has your relationship with them changed? <laughs> have they moved at all? Have you been able to move them? <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're. I mean, on one level, my parents are just proud that they see me moving towards my purpose. I went to college for business. I graduated oh, with a business. Wow. Yeah, I graduated with a business degree, um, and so. Um, they were absolutely proud of that. And they were also, my mom was skeptical when I quit my job to to help start the organization. Um, but I, I, I've moved my, I, it's interesting. My father and I have talked way more about left politics in the last few years than my mother and I. Um, and I think my dad is, I, I, I'm going to see him next week in Chicago. I'm speaking at the Young Democratic Socialists of America oh, conference nice. in Chicago. Yeah, and I'm going to go see him. And, um, I, you know, I know you're going to edit this for time. I can talk super long, but oh, my yeah. dad and I just didn't have as, ma- have as many, I didn't take advantage of as many opportunities to speak with him and talk to him at length in my adult life because I was just focused on living. Mm-hmm. And um, neither one of us really liked talking on the phone that long. Mm-hmm. And in the last few months and, and really the last year, we've talked way more about left policy. I'm like, where was all of this when, when I was little, you know, right. and he, and, and my dad is, a, like I said, he's a learned man. He's a well-read man. And we, maybe we just, maybe he felt that opening this part um, t- too early was, dangerous. <laughs> it, 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 it was dangerous, you know, obviously it didn't help. I wound up here um, anyway, right. but who knows if I, if he, if we had talked earlier where I'd be. And my mother is proud. My mother is just proud. She is vote, voting for Bernie. Yes. Um but I, but my mother comes from a different place. She comes from a from a heart far more and a lived experience that I alluded to at the panel last week. That is very risk averse, right? You know, and can't can't really make gambles, especially when you got somebody like a Trump mm-hmm. um, in office. And my mom drives Uber and Lyft, and she uh-huh. is struggling. And so um, she wants to know who's going to beat Donald Trump and who's going to be able to put, help her put food on the table, et cetera. And so. It's, it's different. Right. Um, and it's it's interesting because I always admire people who come to their politics on their own. Um, <laughs> like I was totally spoiled and came, you know, I get no credit for my for my politics because I have the same ones as my parents. Um, uh, I envy you. I oh, en- thank I, you. Yeah. Well, sure. I, I envy your, uh, I get you. Yeah, my, I was lucky in that, but it's pretty impressive. Do you remember any aha moments you had when you were like, oh, maybe the way I've been seeing things isn't the way I see them now? Oh, man. I, I, I mean, every every month, every month, every week I have another aha moment because I'm able to sit and, I, you know, as organizers, you're able, we're able to sit and listen and talk to people. And I'm sitting with Dr. Cornell West yeah. and he's. I mean, that happened last week. I'm on a panel and I'm experiencing the panel at the same time. Like, God, dog, I didn't think of it that way. I didn't I didn't even know about who this person was. And I've always had a um, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm always been a voracious reader. And I 
I slacked for <laughs> during college. Mm-hmm. I slacked a lot, a lot on it, and to to feel that I was such I was behind a lot of the younger activists and organizers I was coming across, I didn't like it, and so I just would dig myself in. But even that was insufficient when you're when you're organizing um, and talking to people. I would say a big aha moment that I do talk about a lot is you know we at Dream Defenders have spent two to three years um, trying to refine where we you know, our our analysis of the world and how we talk about it and abolition is and was a big thing that we talked about and police abolition, prison abolition. Dr. Angela Davis is on our board. Um, Michelle Alexander is on our board. You know, we this was our and and um, because of the way the movement was with big actions and kind of big stuff, we were able to really talk about abolition on a big stage. And we really started to feel like maybe the world was with us. And we we went on a listening project in Florida, which really was just us knocking on doors and talking to people. And to just be reminded that so many in our communities actually wanted more police. Mm, and right. um, we're wondering what was happening with this unsolved murder that happened last week and who was going to get the drug dealer off the corner and why were so many people in this abandoned house over here and why is it so loud in the middle of the night why are there why are police more police not happening and how they were it was really just inconceivable that you would have some young kids come to your door who didn't live in that neighborhood might i add mm. saying we don't need any police right and um, this was five, you know, five or so years ago, and we've changed how we talk about it and how we engage with it. But one of our, some of our mentors were with the Black Panthers, and they'll say, you know, we we got ahead of the people. Right. And sometimes we got ahead of the people, and I think that's just a, been a big lesson for me, and has shaped how I talk and how I move and how I don't talk sometimes, and just you know, we sometimes as activists we can get too far ahead of the people. And as organizers, which I see a difference between the two, as organizers, we have to stay in connection with the people, um, never behind them, patronizing. Right. Um, but, you know, sometimes you have to be a catalyst, but it's a it's a dance that we're doing with folks to make sure we don't get too far ahead of them. Yeah, that's like a, a really hard thing to balance um, and to struggle with, right? Because you don't want to be kind of condescending and patronizing and snobby and like mm-hmm. infantilizing like oh these people they don't you know it's too hard for them to get this or they'll come around mm-hmm. but they're not there yet but you also mm-hmm. don't want to be um so you don't want to be infantilizing on the one hand but you also don't want to be kind of out of touch um yeah. and and condescending in another direction the condescending in a um like you don't get this I'm going to explain it to you or you can mm-hmm. be condescending in a, you don't get this and you're incapable of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, Look, it's so hard because you also like, um, you know, we were, we we're doing door knocks and it's kind of that difference also between going to the door and just doing a survey, which is really nice. It's, it's, it's good. Um, but we have thoughts. And that was a big, another learning that I had from uh, Eric Mann out of L.A., um, he said, you know, there's so many organizers that go door to door and ask people, what do they want? What do they want? And uh, then they do a whole project and they say, hey, this is what people want. Well, sometimes the people don't know what they want mm. or sometimes what right. they want. And so it's like that dance where um, you're not a blank slate. You do have ideas. You do have a politic. You do want to help. You do think you know a direction to go in. Right. Um, 
So you've got to provide that, but it's also not hitting them with the hammer. This is the only way and you must do this. And so it is this delicate balance. Yeah. Yeah. And you do, I mean, you also have to realize like, it's kind of like if, if, if we know that there is so much propaganda and and indoctrination, of course, people are going to have that. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And we do have, yeah, that's always really hard, especially like across community. I mean, that's why organizing is so important because it's really like from within a community is so different from mm-hmm. across communities. I mean, there's a time, there's a time and place for everything, but it really does require, I think often like, you know, um, it, it just, it can, when you're from within a community, you're doing it within a community, it gets rid of certain barriers, not all of them at mm-hmm. all, but certain mm-hmm. ones. It's, it's different ones for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Different ones. Yeah. Eric Mann, the, um, the court, the guy from Congress of racial equality, um, no, an no. SDS. Oh no. Okay, different one. No, hold on. Okay. Let me let me get it. Let me get it here. He's a civil right. No. Nope. It's a okay. different one. Um, British in- philatelist and cricketer. Probably not. <laughs> yeah, he does have a lot of hobbies. This yeah. Guy. Um, let me see. Hold on one second. I'm gonna find. No, actually, damn, I didn't know he did all that shit. Yeah, yeah, he's out in LA now. He wrote Playbook for Progressive. That's what it is. Oh, okay. I was mixing it up with Rules for Radicals, which I knew he didn't uh, do. Oh, yeah, he did. Right, Playbook, right. 16 yeah, Calls a Successful Organizer. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he's yeah. also another Jewish guy like Bernie, who was a <laughs> uh, in core, active in, yeah. in Congress of Racial Equality. Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. So he, and he's out in LA. Um, and uh, has done a lot of great work and for the fight for fight for the fight for our cities. And he's somebody that you know four or five years ago I was in contact way more often with, but I just never forgot him leaving that with me. You know, you've got ideas, we're not blank slates, it's just trying to figure out what is that balance, right? Um, and so speaking of door knocking and canvassing, um, what is the mood like right now post Iowa? What well, do you I want people had- to know? So, okay, because I haven't, I can't wait to get to a door um, post Iowa, but I think the mood is the the team, the strategy, the supporters, the volunteers, the staff um, ran uh, an excellent campaign. We had entire caucuses that were 100% for Bernie. And I, once the numbers um, shake out, we're going to win the popular vote. We're going to, you know, I think people are confident we're going to win the delegate vote as well. You know, right now at 62%, which is this arbitrary random number they've come out with, um, we're winning the popular and not the delegate vote. But I think everything will be, uh, or a little bit of it will be righted at the end. But the message is, this is a campaign that's very ironic. Months ago, people were saying this campaign was dead in the water Mm -hmm. and that Iowa was so far out of reach. It was foolish to even imagine that he could be competitive in Iowa. And in the weeks prior to it, the media uh, story began began to switch. And I I noted this on my little Twitter, but I noted it because what it was trying to do is set up an expectation that was so high then for Senator Sanders that if he didn't hit that, then it was seen as a loss. So right. it's a very, very, very slick narrative thing that they did, where if they had to continue to talk about it, how they really believed it was supposed to be, that he was not even supposed to be in the contest and did what he is about to do. And it's about to be announced, knock it out of the park. It would have been a strong sign. But, you know, they robbed us. They robbed this campaign. And I'll even be objective and say they robbed us some of the other campaigns yeah. of a real moment 
to be able to have a clear narrative about what the voters have decided in Iowa, um, and they especially robbed Senator Sanders of what um, would have been a, a catalyzing moment. But we're about to win New Hampshire. We're about to go to Nevada, California, and be extremely competitive, if not victorious, in all of those places too. So. For me, I don't know if there's one message, but it's always been that we're running the best campaign with the most people. Um, we're touching people who have never been brought into the democratic process. Yeah. We're, we're working with them to be subjects in their lives, not objects to be talked to and talked down to and talked at. And that's why we won Iowa, and that's why we're going to win the, the nomination. And where are you now? Well, I'm about to head. I've got a few minutes, a few days at home, and then I'm headed out west to Nevada. Oh, great. And you were in Iowa and um, kind right. of I was there out. before. Yeah. I wasn't there. I wasn't there in these last few days, and I was wishing I wanted yeah. to be there so bad, but I wasn't able to be there the last four days, five days. But you were there before, and that's where, and we saw you gave this really like moving um, speech where you had people hold hands with each other. I'm going to ask you to be open to getting to know the human being to your left and your right. The human being that you've been fighting for, the human being that has been fighting for you, the human beings who form the most powerful movement in the history of electoral politics. So if you'll indulge me, I want you to kindly ask your neighbor, can I hold your hand? All right, all right. Okay, so if you have permission, if you have permission and you're holding the hand, I want you all to close your eyes and just follow my instructions. Is that all right? If you grew up in a happy home, please squeeze your hand gently. If you grew up in a home that wasn't so happy, please squeeze your hand. If you've ever wondered where your next meal might come from, please squeeze your hand. If you've ever been harassed or catcalled as you walk down the street, please squeeze your hand. If you've ever been told to stop crying, that tears are cracks in your armor and signs of weakness, please squeeze your hand. If you've ever fallen ill and self-medicated or ignored it because the bill might hurt more than the ill, please squeeze your hand. If you've lost a job, please squeeze your hand. If you've laid awake at night wondering if your son or your daughter was gonna come home safely, please squeeze your hand. If you've ever been assaulted, please squeeze your hand. If you've ever sat in a Planned Parenthood or a free clinic waiting alone, please squeeze your hand. If you've ever been pulled over by a police officer and prayed to God that you'd make it home, please squeeze your hand. If you've ever gone to war, please squeeze your hand. If you've ever gone to war with your mind, please squeeze your hand. If you've ever had to dodge a bill collector's incessant calls, please squeeze your hand. If you ever smoked a joint or a blunt while listening to your favorite artist, please squeeze your hand. If you've ever been misgendered or judged for your identity, please squeeze your hand. 
If you've ever had to wake up at the crack of dawn to catch a bus or ride to visit a loved one behind bars, please squeeze your hand. If you've ever had to argue with a family member about a prehistoric idea, please squeeze a hand. If you've ever wondered if a loved one may be deported, please squeeze your hand. If you believe in the power of love and action, please squeeze a hand. If you believe in the power of human beings to change history and rewrite their tomorrows, please squeeze a hand. If you believe that there is nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come, that the long arc of the universe always bends towards justice, please squeeze a hand. If you are ready to work every day as a creator of your life, to do everything in your power to build a political revolution that will shake the very foundation of this empire, please squeeze a hand. Now raise them. And though Nina Turner couldn't be here, our national co-chair couldn't be here, I want you to repeat after me with these hands. We will rebuild our communities. With these hands. We will free our people from prison. With these hands. We'll fight for a nation that makes our grandparents and our grandchildren proud. And our grandchildren proud. With, these With these hands, we will build power, will build power. And, transformation. and transformation. With these hands, we will do miracles. Now repeat after me, power, power. Transformation. transformation, and miracles. miracles. We, want we want it. We need it. We, need it. we got to have it. Right now. Right now. Right now. Right now. Right now. Tell your neighbor thank you. Tell your neighbor good to meet you. I'm ready to fight with you. How did you come up with that idea? It, it, it just came to me that week. They told me maybe on Tuesday or Wednesday, that was a Friday that the speech happened. They told me on Tuesday or Wednesday that I'd be speaking. And then Wednesday or Thursday, they alluded that I might have a little bit more time than usual to be up there. And so I, I was like, you know, I can't, I can't be jumping around the stage and getting people to jump around for 20 <laughs> right. minutes. That's going to be, so how can we get people to connect? And so the, the squeeze your hand was my idea. The with these hands is absolutely um, Senator Nina right. Turner's um, that she's brought into the campaign. And the whole premise of the idea is just, I grew up in the black church and for all its, all its conservative inclinations, there is a piece to it that I think is inherent in the best spiritual and community practices where people start to feel something for the person next to is empathy. Mm, yeah. And that's what I really want to do. That's why I've hoped that I could do every time. Most of the things that I do for the campaign actually don't make it on the videos because I'm I'm having organizing conversations in barbershops. And right. I, as that's what I was hoping to do. And that's where the idea and the impetus came from. It is that people in this iteration, but we've been demeaned in this way before, but they see leftists as very heady people mm-hmm. who, who descend from uh, ivory towers or you know, middle-class backgrounds right. um, with all of these books that they've read seeking to save working people. And um, 
you know, there's been some examples of that. Sure. We can't de- we can't deny it. But at at the at you know, I quoted it last week. At the risk of sounding foolish, all revolutionaries are moved by great feelings of love, mm-hmm. and we've got to remember that piece. And I think Western civilization demeans and disparages dreams and love as like flighty things that have no place in business or work or anything else. Um, but I actually think that love and dreams and imagination and empathy are crucial, crucial um, connective tissues for the movement. And I was just trying to bring that to that speech and that time and hopefully to the to what we're building with Sanders and beyond. Yeah. Um, no, it was really, really moving. And, and you, I mean, it is true that these things get separated as if being, um, you know, caring about justice or social justice or equality or just fairness. I mean, that really is based on love. Mm-hmm. Like justice and love are very adjacent. Um, yeah. And people don't see that. Yeah. No, no I'm sorry. No, and anger. Yeah. And anger. Yes. Uh, yes. It's it anger. Most of the anger that we see is people who saw something really bad happen to somebody yeah. and they're pissed off about yeah. it and they're angry about it. And anger, I think, comes from most of the time it comes from love. It comes from you feeling wronged or unloved or you seeing somebody being wrong or unloved. You know, when, w- once it gets to rage, then then we've got maybe a different different consuming of anger that maybe isn't helpful. Right. But Possibly. But but anger and all of those, I think, are rightful emotions. And, you know, the world we live in, the Western world, does this bifurcation of mind, body and soul. Those things all have to be separate. Those things never, never find themselves at home in one movement or one place. And I think we've got to push back against that as a part of our humanizing of, of people in our movement. Um, yes, that's really true. And, and of course, when people get upset that, um, what is it? They're always like, oh, he's so angry. Why is Bernie so angry? It's like, (laughs) do you want him to be happy with the status quo? I mean, that is, I guess what a lot of people do want. It's like, why aren't you? Yeah, exactly. Why are you more angry that someone's angry than you are about the thing he's angry about? (laughs) Yep. Yep. I hear it over and over. And you know what? I haven't heard it as much lately because I think it's really well first off i think people are getting to know senator sanders senator bernie sanders a little bit better and they're also realizing that the anger isn't at everybody i think there was a time where when you only saw him on a debate stage or something you thought the anger was just directed at the the people who are watching the debate you're like why why is he you know why is he but how people are starting to see him in interviews and they're they're seeing him um, at rallies and they're saying, you know what, that's just one part of him. And that anger isn't directed at us at all. It's right. It's a, it's it's directed at people against us. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it is like based on love, like you were saying, he's angry because he cares about people. Yeah. And and, you know, he's he's also angry. And I think people have used this against him, but he's angry because. He spent, you know, 30, 40 years right. uh, hoping that the, the the electoral process in our country caught up to him. And um, and uh, so, there, you know, I think there's a little bit of saying, hey, welcome to welcome. Welcome. Um, now, let's get moving. You know, like you've been waiting in the car for somebody right. for 30 minutes and, and now they're there and it's ready to kind of speed off and let's get going. Right. 
What do you think of this? I talked about this with uh, Senator Nina Turner because Matt uh, Taibbi and I interviewed her, but I brought up the black and Jewish connection, which has been like mm-hmm. really interesting historically, and it has run the gamut, obviously, from very positive to very negative. But it does seem like, an, and Cornell West mentioned this on the panel, that there is this connection between like the, the and we saw this a lot in the civil rights movement, between the secular Jewish um, uh, heritage and a black Christian heritage. And I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on it. I don't really have a fully articulated question, yeah. not to put you on the spot about, you know, an overwhelming. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, one thing that I that I think we we have a, our, our communities, you know, I've uh, I quote Hillel often, mm. you know, um, and, you know, if I be for myself, if I right. be only for myself, who will be for me and. and I think at the core of Jewish and Christian and Muslim tradition yeah. is a very radical, liberatory strain at the core, at, at its core, and 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 the expre- you know the expression in the Western world has has either omitted that um, and focused on really what in Christian circles I call we call prosperity gospel right. where. It's only about the wealthy, and if you're not wealthy, you're you're distant away from God's and God's right. grace. And and so I think at the core, we are seeing in this campaign a really radical um, reunion of uh, you know a black Christian um, thread, uh, deep deep liberation theology in the same in the Jewish tradition. And I think on the second, you know, on a secular level, you know, the sign. The signs used to say, you know, right. no blacks. They used to say no, no n words. Right. You know, no Jews, right. no dogs, right. no Mexicans. Um, and so there was a time, not quite, not that long ago, um, where we were we were disparaged and considered um, both at the lowest. I would contend that blacks have always been the lowest right. of the low, considered the lowest of the low. But there was absolutely a time when none of us were allowed. And, um, to eat, to drink, to to worship, to gather, to be around one another. And I think us remembering that and us calling upon that in its most radical sense now, um, that challenges white supremacy, that challenges um, capitalism, that challenges pa- patriarchy, is a reclamation of that history of our of our our peoples. If if you know if that's how you you know if that's how you want to say it, our peoples, our communities, our mm-hmm. religions, right. our faiths. It is a reclamation of that, and we're seeing it within this this campaign. I I do think it's beautiful. I think it's not without contradiction and not without complication, but it is an important development um, in us getting back to where we I think once were historically, right. and though it didn't go away, it hasn't been seen as prominently as it is now. Yeah, there's some people who have no idea about it. Mm-hmm. Like they yes. just yeah, they just know of like the Crown Heights. For instance, I was talking right. to someone about this. The history and they're like yeah crown heights it's like oh oh yeah well there's that history but there's also the civil rights movement the organizing um mm-hmm. and yeah and you know another fascinating thing is the way that sanders really has like i mean the muslim support for him is yes. is really moving and exciting and obviously muslim and arab are not uh the same and they can overlap in there. But there is, in fact, my friend Shuja Hader wrote a really good piece about this for Jewish Currents, ironically. He's, mm-hmm. um, oh, wow. yeah, he's a Pakistani American. He talks about how after 9 11, there was this like pan Arab Muslim 
somewhat unity just by by virtue of because of Islamophobia. So mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. people attacking Sikhs, they had no idea that what like what it means to be Sikh and that they had nothing to that they're not Muslim. Not that like you should right. be attacking Muslims, but it's not even within the racist logic. Um mm-hmm. And uh, so, I, so both I've seen a lot in both those communities, um, the Arab and/or Muslim American community. Do you? Why do you think that is? Do you think? Um, yeah. What do you think that is? Well, if I can, if I can add to the to the kind of anecdotes. Last night, yeah. a good friend of mine, the political director in Iowa, Absher, um, I think he had you know up to a dozen. Don't quote yeah. me, but up to a dozen dozen mosques who were caucus sites. Um, these are holy places. That that usually people see as separated or um, kind of distant from American politics that form the center of what is going to be um, Senator Sanders' winning strategy in Iowa. And these these are places where 200 people attended and 200 people caucus for Senator Sanders. So just to add to that, you know, I and I and I've got Palestinian friends mm, who yeah, um, yeah. Um, support. Um, I was just with the co-founder of Dream Defenders, Ahmed Abusnaid, who is a Palestinian brother who lives in Dearborn or just outside Dearborn. And he's saying, look, we're going we're they're all Bernie. We're going Michigan's going for Bernie. Yeah. Um, I think it is just it is right. It, it is because he has stood for what is just and what is right. I think when we talk about Israel, Palestine, I'm I'm more left than the senator is on the subject. But there is no yeah, presidential yeah. candidate of the last since 1948 or before who has without being prodded without being pushed who has proactively brought up Palestine Palestinians on the national stage like Senator Sanders has done over and over and over again. Now, as you said, Palestine and Palestinians are not a proxy for the entire Arab or the entire Muslim community. Um, But I think for that segment of the community, it shows a willingness and a bravery and a commitment to fight for people who have been erased from the map and erased from political discourse. um, And that, that resonates with them. As far as the wider Arab and Muslim community, you look at this is a person who, as I said, who has just been a champion against war, mm, right? Yeah, yeah. Who true, has right. who has talked about um, the, our wars in the Middle East and what that does to the to people who has spoke out against xenophobia and Islamophobia as a part of his campaign and um, for president and and as part of far as the Senate campaigns um, on the Senate floor. So I think what what they see in him is a champion and. You know, there's a lot of people that, you know, maybe overgeneralized, but we're all cousins. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 um, I think a lot of people just are and not just enamored is, is too maybe flippant a word, but are, are absolutely happy and overjoyed that there's somebody um, who happens to be Jewish. Right. 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 Um, as well, who is unapologetic in speaking up for people and um there's black people there's young black people this this is a campaign that's animating all those people yeah no it is really moving to see that and again like you said maybe he's not where we would like to be or we would like our president to be but as you also said it's like he's pretty i mean he really pushes the limits um and that's Mm -hmm. a whole other conversation about like the political possibilities but um 
Yeah, just and it's a it's a sad standard, but the fact that just like just um, invoking the humanity of Palestinians is a radical mm-hmm. thing to do when you're running for <laughs> office, which is really terrible. But it's mm-hmm. true, and it is really. I mean, it's so important to see someone do that who's Jewish because it is. It's so important to show the world that that is not that it's not anti-Semitic to be mm-hmm. critical of Israel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's ushering in an era. I think we we. We're not overstating to say it is ushering in a seismic shift yes. um, in rhetoric, but in geopolitics yeah. um, that we've never, I've never, I, I mean, you're what, 36, 37? You know, we have never, we have never experienced uh, a president who has this type of orientation towards that region of the world yeah. or toward the world period. So this is, it's mind blowing. Yeah. It is. And I think like you were saying, of course, that's just one segment, but for better, I mean, for better, for worse, the truth is that that is seen by so many people um, as this kind of symbol of the disregard for Palestine, for Arab and Muslim life, Um, Mm -hmm. the the utter contempt and the accept, if not contempt, any acceptance of, of the contempt. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And what what else have you seen uh, during the organizing? Like what what have you learned, or what's been one of the most moving things that you've witnessed? Um, well, to your last point, I, did, I I forgot to really highlight uh, Linda Sarsour. Oh who's yeah, of course. Also, in, to, you yes. know, in, mm-hmm, in twenty sixteen, who I think deserves rightfully yeah. so a lot of credit for um, bringing Senator Sanders into the consciousness um, of a lot of people. This time around, I mean, I got a lot of stories. I, I mean. I've got funny stories. I mean, I've seen, I've had the opportunity to walk with him and behind Senator Sanders through South Carolina um, primarily. And this man cannot take two or three steps Mm. without people stopping on the street, coming out of beauty salons, coming out of barbershops, running out of wherever they are to come and speak to him. Now, you know, us lefties, we, we, we should and must always be cognizant and wary of cult of personality. Yeah, yeah, but we're in a celebrity culture yeah. um, and he is a bona fide one, even though I think he's done everything humanly possible yeah. to, to not be, including yeah. making it his slogan. But right. he is he, people are excited to meet him. I've even seen people who at first glance, and I'm pretty sure maybe at first conversation, we're not voting for Bernie Sanders, you know, and they're excited to meet him and talk to him. Um, And, 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 you know, for for whatever it's worth, I think I don't have the foil or the perspective of him being an unknown on the trail, but I I have, this is a product of many years of work um, that he is known to people as somebody who is fighting for them and as somebody who they're excited to meet, not because he's a star, but because, you know, people are saying, thank you. Mm. People are saying, go, go get him. Yeah. Keep fighting, you know, keep fighting, Bernie. Um, you know, what else have I heard? Yeah, you, you, you keep telling the truth, you know, and yeah. th- these are not, let's just take a selfie. It's like, hey, man, thank you, know, thank you. And so that's been really exciting for me to see, um, you know, beyond that, 
I like talking to people. Every person I get the opportunity to listen and talk to, I like doing that. I really genuinely get more joy out of that than anything. And I've had dozens of conversations now with people who just didn't understand, don't even know that, you know, don't even know who's running for president, have already decided that this whole thing is nothing, nothing's going to happen for them. And then then looking at me and saying, oh, man, you're just a black dude working for the for the blah, blah, blah. You're going to say whatever you got to say. Mm. And me having to spend 10, 15, 20 minutes and me leaving conversations with people legitimately saying, yo, you know what? Either Bernie got my vote. We got some of this on video, you know, Bernie, yeah. chanting Bernie, or you gave me something to think about, yeah. which to me actually means something a little bit more. Yeah. Um, so that that's what I'll say. And that's what I've seen. I've seen people who are not who weren't paying attention before. I've got friends who are, I've seen bars full of like bars, people getting drunk at bars watching the debate like that kind of means something in, in the, for our low bar Western right. voter participation that people are like, yo, yo, the debate is on. Yeah. <laughs> like, and so um, those are the things that I'm most excited about. And I think Senator Sanders is a, is a big part of um, what has become a democratic field that um, by and large has had to respond to his platform and yeah. not the other around. And so what do you want to leave people with? There are a lot of people who are really frustrated, really disappointed, depressed, angry. Um, what do you feel like, uh, what, what, should, what is to be done? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, this with, is... the, with the Iowa, Michigas, as we say, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, um, they're not going to be able to take this from us. Um, and, um, they're going to try, they're trying so hard and doing everything that they can, even to the point of comedic tragedy, but they're not going to be able to take this from us. If everybody who cares about their own life and their neighbor's lives comes out and vote. And, um, you know, this is actually the fight of our lifetime. And we actually have a legitimate opportunity not to choose the lesser of two evils, but somebody who's going to transform this country. Yeah. Well, that thank you so much. Um, I mean, I'm sure we could go on forever, but I want—I don't want to derail you from organizing for this—the most important moment, as you were saying it. Um, yeah, this was really great, and thank you so much for everything you're doing. And let me know if there's ever—you know—when you're in town next, we should definitely do a, a taping with you on um, Useful Idiots. It's really fun. I would—I would love to, and uh, it's an honor. I, last thing I'll say is that we've got a resurgent young cool mainstream left and yeah. i think that should give everybody hope for the next few generations because kids are watching and they're they're ready to go yeah um and i i should i should in full disclosure because i don't you know we have to air out the conflicts of interest i uh i did offer to the senator when we interviewed him for useful idiots i said that i um i offered to be his running mate and um <laughs> He was Matt type. Matt type. My coach is like, yeah, Katie's Katie offers, and he's like, is that is that right? Was that send me your resume? Send me your resume. And Matt's like, yeah, um, I agreed to you know let her go, um, let her out of the contract. And I was like, no, we'll go, we'll go around together, Matt. We'll go bring the show on the road while I'm his his running mate. And Bernie's like, well, uh, Matt needs a steady job, and uh, a uh, vice president needs a staff. So there you go. So funny. <laughs> it was amazing. Hey, well, listen, I you know it's a short list, so to know that I know somebody on it, this oh, will yeah. be good. You know, yeah. if it works, 
I, I see you being a very, very active VP. Oh, totally. Yeah, I won't be able to keep <laughs> up with him. I'm gonna have to like get, get into much better shape. Um, yeah, we all do. We yeah. all do. So okay. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I'll, I'll be chief of staff in there. I'll be yeah. chief of staff for VP. Great, perfect. So now we got. Uh oh, Matt's gonna be upset. We're gonna have to figure this out. Uh, We're gonna have to do a coin toss. <laughs> right, right. Hey, listen. In the spirit of Iowa. Of Iowa yeah. how- oh, and did you did you see by the way really quickly Chris Matthews when he was saying that Bernie's doing well because he's um because caucuses are like meetings and socialists <laughs> like meetings. It was amazing. Yes. He's yes, he's yes. like one of my favorite stand-ups unintentionally. Yeah, Chris Matthews. Listen, next he's gonna say socialists love people and elections involve people, and yeah, that's exactly. why he's winning. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's, so he's the best funny. guy for us. Yeah, he's so great. Yeah. And uh he's like I love the way he keeps talking about the McGovern election and the lessons yeah. of that, as opposed to the more recent elections. Like history stopped in seventy two. I don't know how, but yeah. Oh man, he's listen, the punditry is just oh literally all of them, you know, you saw the, uh, I don't know if you saw the halftime show with Shakira with her tongue. Yeah. Just doing the, the way, I think that's the punditry. Just everybody is like going crazy. They yeah. don't know. They really don't know what to do. And it's just the time, what a time to be alive. Cause they really are realizing they don't got nothing figured out. Yeah, I know. They got to go with the um, Bernie's um, controversial green parka. Remember that? The expensive <laughs> yeah. coat that his son gave him, by the way. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, the, it's on par with the Hunter Biden scandal, you know? Yeah, exactly. Hunter Green, Hunter Biden. Hey, I just realized that. Yeah, we figured it out. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, Katie. thank I you really so much. You. Looking yeah. forward to talking again and seeing you again soon. Great. Thank you so much, Philip. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye bye. Here's Cornell West. I mean, the question that you raise is raised at almost every gathering of progressives, yeah. you know, because the country is so rooted in white supremacy and male supremacy. This thing, these things don't change overnight. We know that. Same is true with the new immigrants who arrived after yeah. 1965. Yeah, as a result of white supremacist immigration pushed back as a result of the black freedom movement. They come from everywhere now. So that you're absolutely, but one of the ways you do it is yourself raising your voice making sure you begin to shape the destiny of the Bernie campaign, of the social movement itself, and making sure wherever you go, no matter what color the people are, that you're honest about your version. You're anti-racist, anti-sexist, anti-homophobic. You're not going to put up with any kind of hatred of Jews and Palestinians and Arabs. You're not going to have it. Then that doesn't mean you're going to be a majority voice, because a whole lot of different kind of people are in the room. But you're being explicit about that. And so it becomes integral to how you proceed. Because you and I know, in the end, it's not going to be a question of skin pigmentation. That is not what goes into spiritual and moral and political formation. We take John Brown over Clarence Thomas any day. We take Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Over Henry Kissinger. <laughs> Thank you. You got two Jewish brothers. One's a gangster. One's fighting against gangsterism on the domestic front. Can I? See, so that in that sense, it's the quality of the person, the quality of the movement, and the voices of like yourself and others that come together and say, we're going to hit this thing head on. But in a movement, you don't have one person dictating like the police. No, it's got to be shaped in the whole culture of the movement. And, and, and Bernie's just been at this now five years. Ten years ago, how many people even knew Bernie Sanders? Mm-hmm. Right. You had to hang out in Burlington, Vermont, 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and socialist workers didn't even know who he was. Is that fair? Of course. Absolutely. Yeah. So look, look at what is happening. He didn't do that on his own. He was occupied. It was a whole host of movements and forces at work that threw him out. And he happens to be this unprecedented presidential candidate in the history of the nation that can actually provide the kind of movement for poor and working people. Threw him out of the food call. Just, just unleashed. Can I, can I speak real, real quick more precisely for the students for Bernie and people who claim Bernie? If the importance of somebody is based on the van or your canvas, do you know what the van is? Okay, y'all that canvas know what the van is. It's a way that Democratic Party provides a list of people with whom you are to engage who are important, how important they are, how frequently they engage. If that is the metric by which you are deciding what doors you knock on, what conversations you have, where you go, we will fall short of our goal. That's what I mean. Um. Soul is a very, very difficult term to come to terms with because you know, I come from a soulful people. Mm -hmm. You see, the soul is always about when you're hated, you love back, you terrorize, you fight for freedom of everybody. It's the sharing and soothing of a sweetness, a painful truth, and a vision of transforming the world in which you live. You see, that's Stevie Wonder. Oh, wow. You see, that's true. That's John Coltrane. Yeah. That's Mary Lou Williams. That's Sarah Vaughan. That's Aretha Franklin. So soul is a very dangerous term. And Martin Luther King Jr., when he formed his first, first organization, what was it called? The Southern Christian Leadership Conference to do what? Redeem the soul America. of America. And Malcolm X said, America ain't got no soul. <laughs> so you can't talk about one without the other. So the soul of the Democratic Party, what kind of painful truths are they telling? What kind of visions do they have of transforming the world? What kind of soothing sweetness? And sweetness is not some sentimental sentiment. It's Sappho. It's bittersweet. And bittersweet's about love, and love will turn your world upside down if you got the real thing. You see, that's what it is come from a soulful people. So that the love is crucial in terms of what it looks like in the public sphere. Justice. What it looks like in the private sphere. Tenderness. You see. So in that way, the soul of the Democratic Party today, corporatized, commodified, tied to Wall Street, tied to big military, tied to denial when it comes to ecological catastrophe in a serious way, and then want to act as if they're progressive for a few weeks <laughs> as they move back into a less soulful condition. And so when somebody like Bernie Sanders come along, you say, oh, we've got this secular Jewish brother from Brooklyn who made his way to Vermont. <laughs> now, what kind of painful truths is he telling? What kind of soothing Sweetness in the form of solidarity, solidarity. Is he not just talking about enacting over time? What kind of visions that he has for fundamental transformation? And we have to be very honest about this, that you know, Brother, Brother Bernie's not running on a socialist platform. Come on. I've been a socialist for 52 years. Yep. Mm -hmm. I take a bullet for Bernie. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily in the heart, that's for mom, but. <laughs> <laughs> Right over here. That's that, that's that Bernie zone right there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, I'll take you. I'll take you. But he's not running on the socialist platform, but he's running connected to a movement yep. that is so progressively oriented that is leading toward the empowerment of poor and working people. And in that way, the soul of the Democratic Party, which 
our dear brother Bernie is now fighting with us becomes so much and everything is at stake in terms of the prospects for this very fragile experiment in democracy against its imperial backdrop at present and past. Hmm. Here's Isha Krishna Swami. Well, I'd like to say that today we're at Harvard and none of us are worried about a drone strike killing all of us. Right. And that is something right. that most of the world cannot um, right. do not have that luxury. Drones have killed wedding, I mean, so we've droned weddings, whatnot. You, like, so um, what I noticed with the structural change is that it sounds a lot more like the IMF structural adjustment. Um, that's where, <laughs> yeah, so that's where you basically go and say, hey, we're gonna, uh, you either have a choice, here's the US military, you can privatize and sell all of the water and all the assets and enact austerity, or you're gonna get, um, I don't know, Cood. Um, is that a verb? It <laughs> I don't is know. now. Okay. It is now. Okay. <laughs> no, it's a verb. So, um, so I see that, uh, okay, I'm just going to name names. I see that uh, Senator Warren often f falls into line of the U.S. empire. She, like at Path Save America, she called him President Guaido. Who elected him? Zero people. Um, she has um, praised Netanyahu before. Um, and so she falls into all the empire propaganda. And for me, it made a big difference when I saw Senator Bernie Sanders, when they asked him, do you think Juan Guaido is the legitimate president of Venezuela? He said no. And that to me is the difference is one buys into the empire propaganda and the other does not. Here's Michael Brooks. But I mean, structural adjustment, she did say her most favorite uh, foreign leader was Angela Merkel, and I understand why Hold she on. would say that. Ooh. <laughs> yep. But I'm also quite aware of what she did to Greece. And we really that's need that's to be, I think that. this is so important. Uh, just two, two quick things, to, three quick things to follow up on. You, the foreign policy needs to be synchronized with the domestic. It's not yes. an afterthought. It's not, oh, I'm concerned about that on the weekends or all of that. It's synchronized. Chickens come home to roost. It's, it's moral, economic, and political synchronization. Yes, they come home to roost. Also, uh, in, in the language, I'll, I'll reference Lula again. Lula said, you know, he said, look, in response to a journalist, not me, I asked him good questions. <laughs> they lifted 40 million people out of poverty. They said, didn't you, you know, why didn't you do more on infrastructure? Which, you know, first he did. But he said, look, if poor people ate cement, that would have been the number one priority. Yeah. Yeah. My number one priority was food, because <laughs> yeah. people didn't have food. And third, I just, on a tactical level, there is a core contradiction in her campaign specifically, because the candidates on the right are saying, we're just going to do the same thing. Put us into office. We'll protect you from Trump. Whatever. Go get the hell out of yep. the way. Yep. She's saying, I'm going to do something that is fundamentally transformative by the same rules at which the other people do the center-right platform, which will fail in both regards. It will fail on an inside track because it's enough of a challenge in certain areas to annoy people. And it is timid and narrow and not democratic enough to actually engage a movement to even yep. have a prayer of passing those things. Yep. And that's why Bernie's campaign is synchronized between the policy and the movement. Yep. Here is Crystal Ball. I, I kind of want to challenge the premise of the question a little bit. I think the hollowness of those institutions and their failures is already manifest. Yeah. I mean, if the Iraq war wasn't enough, 
the financial crisis and the fact that all none of the experts saw it coming, right? I mean, all of these failures, and then you know the way that look what Donald Trump did vis-a-vis -vis Russia was not acceptable, not okay. The way the campaign opened themselves up for that, for that help. But we were all led to believe night after night we were going to get the P tape. I mean, this was <laughs> way further. I think the conspiracy theorizing that just gripped every single cable news network and every mainstream institution has just exposed the hollowness of and the transparency of their agenda. And it really resonated what Megan said earlier about how she's sort of dismissed sometimes because she's upfront about the lens that she views and the ideology that she views her politics. And I, obviously, I get the same thing. But gosh, I would prefer that yeah, exactly. to someone who pretends to be like, oh, I'm just calling balls and strikes here. But when Bernie Sanders accurately cited academic research, actually, he gets three Pinocchios for that. I mean, you know, the ideology has become so obvious. You can see it. Look, in our politics, who did the New York Times endorse? Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren. How has it helped them in the polls? Not very much. So I don't think that this, um, I think the, the problem is more what comes next, right? There is already only a thin slice of America that even cares what the mainstream media is saying, is even fixate on it, trust them at all. It's only a thin slice that's left. And it's the slice, it's the audience they're catering to, right? This is a capitalist business. Their audience, their consumer that they want are basically mostly affluent white liberals. That's their audience. That's who the advertisers want. That's who all the coverage is for. And so if you're outside of that audience, you already see the hollowness and the ideology of what they're doing. I think the more challenging question is what comes next. In some ways, the media, by, uh, by coming up with a variety of excuses for Hillary Clinton's loss, some of them grounded in certain pieces of fact, but they've avoided having to do any real diagnosis of their own failings, and this goes for the Democratic establishment as well. They would rather talk about Russia, they'd rather talk about Comey, they'd rather talk about sexism, all real things, but also great ways to avoid having to talk about the absolute failings of neoliberalism over 30 years, right? So. In some ways, I think either the mainstream has to sort of hit rock bottom and actually do some sort of soul searching, which I am not very optimistic is going to happen. I mean, we see them all out with their bad takes again, saying, you know, so certain after they certainly predicted that Trump was going to lose, and before that certainly predicted Barack Obama couldn't get elected, and all those things. Um, they're out, back out with their bad takes, having done zero self-reflection. So I think it is going to be the alternative that becomes the mainstream. I mean, we talk about it on Rising all the time. You look at the, at the numbers, 70% of America has a boiling anger at the political establishment, right? We are not the minority. We are the majority, the overwhelming majority, says we're done with these people. of Americans say when they think about our political institutions, they want to just burn them all down, okay? <laughs> That's where we are. So the alternative, the so-called alternative, is actually the mainstream view. So to me, that is the future, is these voices becoming larger and more influential. And you see it happening before our very eyes. And those legacy voices being marginalized and increasingly seen 
for the, you know, the, the ideologues who have been wrong about everything consistently um, for what they are. Here's Megan Day. I also want to emphasize something that you just said, Crystal, which is that this is about maintaining the neoliberal status quo, and beyond that, the broader capitalist status quo. And that there are examples throughout history where we can see that dividing people up on the basis of race or gender or sexuality is a very potent way to keep people from uniting to take what belongs to all of them. And you know, one example that from history that might be useful to think about is that um, in New Orleans, in uh, at the, before the Civil War, actually, there were white dock workers, uh, German, many of them German immigrants, Irish immigrants, who actually wanted the abolition of slavery because, for personal reasons, they felt that having people who were not paid uh, anything at all working in their midst was driving their wages down. And then, when slavery was abolished, black workers, newly freed slaves, came to New Orleans to work on the docks, and this posed another problem for their material self-interest because these workers were coming with nothing, which means that they were still undercutting their wages. Mm -hmm. So they went very quickly from being ab abolitionists to um, racists. They began to say things like, send them, send them to Africa, you know. Um, and this, this created a scenario in which, for decades, um, black and white workers in New Orleans actually had separate unions, mm -hmm. and they were uh, competing economically against each other until, uh, you know, each, every time each, each group would strike, the bosses would simply bring in the the other group to, uh, to be scabs or, or strike breakers um, until eventually the uh, white unions looked around and they realized that if they wanted a strike that wasn't going to get broken, they were going to have to ally with the black unions. And so they formed something called the Triple Alliance, which was two white unions and a black union. And they had a general strike in New Orleans in the late in the 19th century, and it worked. And from there on, uh, they actually instituted a rule where black and white, the unions did, where they wanted black and white workers to work together on the docks so that they would be able to develop solidarity with each other because they realized that for pure materially interested reasons, solidarity was the only thing that was going to get the goods. Of course, workers sometimes know this. The working class sometimes realizes this. But the capitalist class always knows That's this. Right. That's they right. always, always know yes. that they have to keep people divided. Otherwise, their worst nightmares are going to come true. That's right. And so you do see, I, I, it's hard to know exactly how coordinated it is, but you just see that you know when, when the capitalist class and the people who are representatives of the capitalist class become afraid, they reach for the closest tool in their toolkit, which is, don't be mad at me, be mad at one of these other people. Be mad at this person on the basis of their skin color, be mad at this person on the basis of their gender. Um, and it's developed some more complexity as we have grown more progressive over time, which is a very good thing, right? Whereas before, it was very simple. It was saying to the white workers, blame the black workers. Just be racist against these black workers. It has developed more complexity. It has matured to the point where not only does the capitalist class do that, but it also weaponizes people's very well-founded sense yeah. of anti-racism and feminism, and it uses that to say, you should be mad at these workers because, in fact, they are the ones who are upholding the racist status quo, and they are the ones who are upholding the patriarchal status quo. But at the end, what's happening always, is that we're not building solidarity across lines of difference in order to build a mass movement that can take what belongs to all working people, right? So.
There's no Mikey Konst. And I think one of the powerful things that came out of 2016 was that people who were just fed up and frustrated started to research these folks and call them out. And they'd call them out while they were on cable news. They'd, they'd engage with them on Twitter. You know, folks with 5 million followers would be responding to folks with 20 followers. Mm -hmm. They're sensitive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I just as a simple tool, and, and I'm going to be talking a lot about this on the show, what we can learn from history, um, what we can learn from their mistakes, what are their strategies, and, and what's in their toolkit, but what is in our toolkit? And I think that is an extremely powerful tool, is holding them accountable. These are not, for the most part, public figures. They are people who make money off of the grift of the cable news industry and the Democratic Party. And as a result, we got Trump. And they know that. And that's why they use those excuses. Every, I mean, the first excuse I heard on election night from a Hillary surrogate on air was it was millennials' fault. Turns out that's not what the data said. <laughs> it was all the millennials' fault. I guess it's fairly simple. I don't think it's that crazy to think that we could have basic dignity for every human. I mean, that's, you know, a good life, good meaning, community. It's, it's maybe not a wild dream, but, you know, a, live, a livable planet with clean air and clean water, dignity and meaning in our lives, family and community around us, where we see every human being as a human being, where workers in their workplaces are treated like human beings, um, where they own, you know, are able to benefit from the fruits of their labor. It sounds radical, but I think it's fairly simple and fairly basic in what all human beings should be entitled to, especially, especially in a wealthy country such as ours. There's just absolutely no excuse for it. I mean, poverty is ultimately a, a tool of social control. That's right. Because if people are desperate, you can, you know, you can make them work for, for 7.25, you can skimp on their wages, you can keep them down, you can keep them so tired that they can't participate politically. So um, that's, it's a choice. That's a choice that we've made in this country to have the poverty that we have and we can make a different choice. A cornerstone of my vision for the future is the idea of democracy at work. We always talk about democracy in the political sphere, and of course we have not achieved a perfect democracy in the political sphere. One of the reasons why we haven't is precisely because we don't have democracy at work. So what I mean by that, and I'm going to recite something that probably a lot of you know, but I'm going to do it anyway in case some of you don't, is that capitalism describes an economic structure where the vast majority of people have to work for a wage to purchase the basic necessities of life. They work for a boss for that wage. The boss gives them the lowest possible wage that they can possibly get away with based on the degree of class struggle and the laws, which are, of course, a result of class struggle. They appropriate the rest of the value of that labor as profit and keep it for themselves. And that's why they're so rich. And that's also why a lot of working people are so poor. So we're when we talk about democracy at work, we're talking about eliminating that relationship we're talking about a more cooperative structure in the economy where we don't have tyrannical fiefdoms in the area of production. And I do think that that will have a salutary effect for democracy in the political sphere as well. So that's the basic set of principles that I start from when I'm, when I'm getting utopian. <laughs> Uh, communist space travel. I mean, I think 
I can only think of one word, and it is democracy. I, I, everybody else has said it's been poetry, but democracy is what I seek. It's how I describe democratic socialism in its purest state. It's what inspires me about this movement. Um, and hopefully we'll see people as humans, every single person equally as a human and not as some sort of financial asset. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was just thinking of notes, and there's like a common thread here because with the question about history, and I, I used to teach history, but there is something really important about oral history and history from below, and I think everyone actually should have their students read oral history, but also do it as, as homework. It's, it's really great. Um, and that is, that's kind of the equivalent of a movement, though, right? It's not telling the story. It's not the powerful people. It's, it's the anonymous people. It's people whose stories haven't been told. And I think that, um, you know, uh, for me, I guess, I am, there's, a, there's, a, there's two things happening at the same time, right? You have Sanders as one, a person, and as he, you know, he's always like, the idea, <laughs> he, he, he puts R's at the end of words, but they don't have it, and then takes them off where they do. And I, I come from a long line of people who do that, so I love it. But, you know, he's like, it's not like people over at, these ideas are like uh, from people living like on the, in the mountains in the avant-garde or whatever. These are like popular ideas. So they, that is very exciting, and it, it's a great combination of how you have like individuals making these ideas intelligible, but also you have huge mass movements behind them. And um, that combination is really exciting. And I, uh, that, I guess, is the, the utopia, the first step for the utopia that I see. And it's not utopian. That's what's so great about it. Yeah. It's not right. utopian. It's very possible. Make sure that you watch the full panels. Uh, you can find them at the Harvard for Bernie YouTube page. You can also find Harvard for Bernie on Twitter at Harvard for Bernie. Major shout out to our hosts and some of the people who spoke before our panel who were really great. And make sure that you follow all of the people who put the Harvard event together. They're really great. And they include Nick Brown, who is at Nick S. Brown 1. James Coleman, that's J.H. Coleman 2225. Piper Winkler, that's Piper underscore Winks. Christian Tabash, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-T-A-B-A-S-H. C.M. Seda, that's Bon Iverson. And Richie Marino, R-I-C-H-M-E-R-I-N-O. They're really all awesome. Thanks so much for listening to The Katie Halper Show. Please support The Katie Halper Show by going to Patreon, patreon.com slash The Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash The Katie Halper Show. 